we are trying to allow perfection to be the enemy of the good. And I don't think that's a very healthy thing for us to be doing if our genuine purpose is to try and resolve and meet the 1.5 degree target. You know, we can't say we're only going to support nature-based removals and we're going to ignore carbon capture and storage and other tools available to us that are capable of helping us get to the 1.5 degree journey. That's the bit that I really struggle with in Carbon Markets 2.0. There's too much ideological debate and not enough practical considerations of the reality of what 1.5 degrees really means and how we should get there. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Base Carbon. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. Welcome back to Carbon Frontiers on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Peter Zaman. Peter is a partner at HFW in Singapore and has been practicing law in climate finance and the environmental markets since 2004. Last year, he walked us through the intricacies of Article 6, and today he's bringing us up to speed on what's changed, what hasn't, and where we go next. Hello, Peter. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to have you back because last year you walked us through Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which governs how countries may meet their climate commitments, their NDC targets through trading, in particular through bilateral agreements between countries, which are governed by Article 6.2, and a multilateral trading mechanism, which is governed by Article 6.4. Suffice it to say, it can be complicated, and I recommend our listeners go back and listen to your episode from last year if they want to hear your unique way of making this complicated topic understandable. But before we kick off, I want to say happy birthday as we are recording this on your birthday. And it feels like, while well, it's your birthday. We're getting the present. So thank you for spending part of your day with us. Oh, thanks. Thanks for the wishes. Absolutely. Now, last time you were here was just after COP26 in Glasgow in which the rulebook for the Paris Agreement was made operational and some of the key issues regarding Article 6 were settled. Now we are well past COP27. So the first question I wanted to ask you, Peter, was if you could take us to where on the frontier we are, what progress has been made on the Article 6 issues since the last time we talked and what remain? Thanks, Dave. Article 6 I guess you have to think about Article 6 in two frontiers. You've got the cooperative approaches under Article 6.2, and you've got the 6.4 mechanism. Now, both are Article 6 mechanisms, but the difference, as you remember or may remember from our last discussion, is that the 6.4 mechanism is the centralized one managed by the UN, whereas the 6.2 cooperative approaches is a multilateral or bilateral arrangement between countries. So you've got to think when you talk about the progress between 6.2 and 6.4 slightly differently, because the levels of progress are quite different. So to answer your question, let me start with 6.2. I mean, actually, there's been 
a fair bit of progress, I would say. Uh, some countries like Switzerland had a head start, and other countries have been fast to catch up. So we actually have 12 finalized cooperative agreements in place, and we have 52 memorandum of understanding or similar things that are in development, which essentially mean that 6.2 is likely to be able to deliver opportunities and benefits for governments much, much more quickly, because essentially it's a G2G level agreement. The 6.4 mechanism suffers from all of the problems of a centralized bureaucratic process, right? You've got to make sure you've agreed who's going to sit on the board. You've got 190 odd countries trying to agree which one of their representatives gets that honor. You've got to figure all those things out. You've got to work out what methodologies from the CDM you want to amend and bring into the Article 6.4 mechanism. You've never really got in your DNA um, during the, from the CDM days any removals experience. So you're trying to understand how removal methodologies work. So there's a lot for the 6.4 supervisory board to try and get its head around. And that progress has been a bit slower. Then you've got the other issues, the technology infrastructure, building the registries, connecting the registries, all of that sort of stuff. So the short answer is we've made progress, but I don't think we've made necessarily enough progress to give people a proper alternative to the voluntary markets just yet. I think that alternative choice that will be available to them could be available roughly from mid-2024 onwards, but that's a slightly optimistic number on my part. If the methodologies get agreed at COP28 for the Article 6.4 mechanism, I think you'll see rapid acceleration in terms of people's activity because then they know, even if the rules are coming, which type of project activities they should be running to invest in. Right. Obviously, the Paris Agreement is an agreement amongst countries, but to make it successful, it's going to need to engage the private sector. We just said the, a lot of the private sectors currently engaged in the voluntary markets. As it stands now, which of the Article 6 mechanisms do you believe will engage the private sector, if either? You've given me essentially an opportunity to plug the paper that we wrote most recently, which actually specifically tries to answer that question. I'll confess that I went into the process of writing that paper with a very much of an open mind. I didn't have a preconceived idea that I would land one way or the other. So I decided to give it a bit of an objective, rational boundary within which to assess the answer to that question. And actually, we framed it as, well, look at which one of 6.2 and 6.4 is more welcoming to private sector participation. So that was one of the criteria we applied. And on that particular one, the Paris Agreement hardwires the idea that even though it's an intergovernmental treaty, private sector participation should apply in the Article 6.4 mechanism. That's written into the Paris Agreement rulebook. It's written into Article 6 itself. There's no question about whether or not the private sector should participate in Article 6.4. On Article 6.2, however, there is no direct reference to private sector participation. So that leaves you with some ambiguity. Now, I take the view, and I don't know if other lawyers would share the view, but I hope they would, that because the Paris Agreement essentially is a bottom-up approach that allows countries flexibility to decide how they should deal with their NDCs and therefore how they should engage or not engage the private sector as part of that exercise, I take the view that Article 6.2 silence is intentional on this point because what it says is that I think that's a question for the countries who are going to put together their cooperative approaches and they should decide whether or not they want private sector participation. So in other words, 
if you want as a country to do a G2G arrangement, government to government only, that's perfectly fine. It just means that you're not leveraging as much as you could or properly the private sector's opportunity to help you scale up the opportunity. If, on the other hand, you take the view that you want it to be a government-to-government plus business-to-business, so G2G plus B2B framework, then because the 6.2 guidelines are silent on the issue, you'll have to build it in into your cooperative approach framework. And actually, if you look at the 12 cooperative approaches that I mentioned that have been finalized, the majority of them do not cater for private sector authorization or participation. And that is a problem because if you want the private sector to engage, the private sector is going to have its own requirements about certainty of investment that will lead to questions that anybody investing doing their due diligence on the framework is going to ask. For example, if you authorize my participation, how do I know you won't randomly revoke my authorization 15 minutes after essentially put all my money in? How do I know that? And if the answer is, oh, you have to trust me, I'm a sensible government to do these things. Well, I'm afraid that isn't going to cut it in the world of essentially internal corporate responsible signing off of financial investment frameworks. You know, you've got your due diligence requirements, you've got questions around certainty of return of investment. And you can't just leave these things to the whims of essentially one government knowing fully well the next government can come in and change the rules at their will. So you have to build in some kind of protection for the private sector. And if you don't do that, you're not really doing a good job in attracting private sector investment or signaling that you want private sector investment in your cooperative approach framework. So that's one of the tests. And the other two tests we applied was the progress made by 6.2 and 6.4, respectively, in building out the infrastructure necessary for them to create the framework. So do you have methodologies in place? Do you have registries in place? Are your registries connected with each other? All of that kind of stuff. And on that one, again, 6.2 might be slightly ahead, but there isn't a lot of point in 6.2 being ahead if there's no private sector role in that place. Whereas, therefore, the 6.4 mechanism might be a little slower to get going. But when it does, your, your private sector role can become much more easily hardwired into it. So there's a greater opportunity to scale your participation in 6.4 through that. And last but not least, we tested it on the question of environmental integrity. And because environmental integrity isn't defined in 6.2, but there is a built-in assurance or minimum built-in assurance in the 6.4 mechanism, we took the view that actually the vagaries or uncertainties of how you ensure environmental integrity in 6.2 really depend on what the parties and negotiating countries agree with each other. So if somebody has a low ambition NDC and therefore can easily generate offsets and the other country says, yeah, I don't care, I'll just take them, then yes, you've got ITMOs coming out of it potentially, which are correspondingly adjusted, but the quality of what you're getting is not that good. So they, there's a challenge there around whether or not your environmental integrity is, is as good as it should be. And therefore, if you look at the 6.4 mechanism, that environmental integrity is hardwired by cancelling a certain number of carbon credits that are generated to ensure that the impact of the transfer of that 6.4 unit is really genuinely felt by the selling country. And therefore, the selling country should make sure that that is counting towards making some good productive outcomes for the, for the benefit of that country and therefore for the environment. And these differences have led to a sort of landing that I think 6.4, based on how things stand today, seem like the better bet. And it, it sounds like we're going to have to get into this notion of corresponding adjustments. I feel it bubbling beneath the surface of your comments there. And I mean, clearly with these issues around 
both of these Article 6 mechanisms still being sorted out. As we said, the private sector is moving ahead with the voluntary carbon markets, but having a set of voluntary commitments alongside a set of national commitments can be problematic from an accounting perspective, or at least confusing, or at least confusing to me. I want to ask you about two of these problematic areas, the problem of double counting and double claiming, as well as the risk you brought of nationalization of carbon reduction and removal projects, that idea that 15 minutes after you get a government promise to make your investment, they could revoke it. But first, I want to get into this meteor topic of, can you walk us through the problem of double counting versus double claiming and where we are with using corresponding adjustments to solve this problem? You were not wrong to say it's a complicated issue. Coincidentally, when we were in Tokyo on a work trip recently, somebody walked up to me and says, you know, there's probably about 10 people in the world who understand this issue. And I don't think he's necessarily wrong. It may be that it's 20 and not 10. But the point that he's making is really that there are not that many people who've been able to figure this out. And, you know, since the last time we spoke about this in, I think it was just after COP26 in January 2021, I've come to the realization that actually there are buying countries and selling countries, both of whom equally struggle with this notion. And I think I understand why the struggle exists. And that goes back to the whole point that, you know, you are being asked as a country to correspondingly adjust for things that don't fall into your NDC. And that's the weird part of it, because the Paris Agreement Article 6 concept, which says when two countries decide that they want to increase their NDC ambition by doing carbon trading, essentially between them, those countries need to ensure that they avoid double counting. That's all the Article 6 rulebook says. It doesn't explain what double counting is. It doesn't define it. And it certainly doesn't spell out in Article 6 how you should avoid the double counting. So COP26 and the Article 6 guidelines resolve the question on how you should deal with the double counting by essentially requiring the host country when they're transferring the credit out from their jurisdiction to put a plus one against its NDC. And if you are a buying country and using that credit towards your NDC, then you put a minus one against your NDC. So the idea that you do this minus one and a plus one against your NDC comes purely from an Article 6 bilateral transaction perspective or multilateral transaction perspective. Now, in that group, you have a whole raft of potential people sitting in the middle. You could have the credit leave the host country and change hands 15 times before it eventually lands in the hands of the buying country. And in the intervening hands of these intermediary countries or people or private sector participants, if they're so allowed, there is no plus minus happening, right? So the plus minus, the corresponding adjustment only happens really at the hands of the host country when it's first transferred and at the hands of the buying country who is the end user using it towards its NDC purpose. So the common sense is that you balance the books ultimately between the people who are creating it and the people who are using it. And in between everything else, fine. There's no plus minus is happening. There's no corresponding adjustment needed. But the idea that a country, host country, will commit to doing this corresponding adjustment, that concept comes from the Paris Agreement and the Article 6.2 and 6.4 guidelines. So when in the context of a voluntary market transaction, you ask the same question, why are you insisting or asking for a correspondingly adjusted unit? 
you've got to ask yourself, well, corresponding adjustment is an Article 6 concept for a purely voluntary transaction. Why am I even talking about it? And I think that's kind of the challenge that intuitively or intellectually people are struggling with when the conversation happens in the voluntary space. And I can recite the arguments that people make to explain why that is necessary. The only problem is I don't agree with the arguments. I don't, I don't personally feel that those arguments stand the test of logic. But I think as you remember me complaining back during the sort of COP26 first conversation, the idea that we should do a corresponding adjustment when the unit's coming from outside my NDC, but that's what we agreed in the Article 6 framework, is itself illogical, but it's what we've got. And what's happened since the last time we talked about this is that the compromise that people reached in order to force through that illogical conclusion that you have to correspondingly adjust even when it's outside your NDC, that compromise deal, which became known as the Japanese solution, essentially allowed host countries through the Article 6.4 mechanisms to say, I can create a 6.4 unit and I can have that 6.4 unit treated and issued, but I don't have to do a a corresponding adjustment to that. And the reason for that really is that it should be a host country's choice as to how that unit is deployed. And why is it a host country's choice? Well, the real reality is, if you require a corresponding adjustment of a host country, that is essentially a penalty to the host country. Why is it a penalty? Because if you think about it, if the country has an NDC of 100, and it has sold 10 credits with a corresponding adjustment. Essentially, the country now within that NDC period has to generate 110 units to be able to meet its NDC, because it's sold 10. But the 10 that it is now having to generate either have to come from overperformance within its NDC sectors, or it has to be coming from a sector that's outside its NDC, which are typically outside their NDC in the first place, because they're expensive. So the cost of abatement or the opportunity cost and the marginal cost of this abatement for a host country gets higher and higher as a country's NDC gets more and more ambitious. So the more we insist on a corresponding adjustment where we don't need one, the more we are saying to the selling country that we're going to make it more expensive for you to be able to essentially meet your NDC objective. So the World Bank's done a really interesting study. And what they did is they, they sort of applied the global change analysis model. And you know there are other ways in which you can calculate it. But applying the global change analysis model, they looked at what would be the marginal cost of abatement for a whole raft of countries in the world. And interestingly, if you look at some of the countries in, in Southeast Asia, the estimated corresponding adjustment cost, which is the marginal abatement cost, is roughly about $25 per ton. That is not counting the cost of the offset itself, because the cost of the offset changes depending on what type of offset it is. Cook stoves may be more expensive or less expensive than avoided deforestation, just as an example. So whatever that unit price is, if you then add to that this $25, which is the aggregated estimated Southeast Asia cost for a corresponding adjustment, the price of a correspondingly adjusted VCU becomes $30 plus a ton, maybe even $40 a ton. But the corresponding adjustment is something to deal with Article 6. And we're talking about a VCU, which is not an Article 6 unit. So why are we applying a corresponding adjustment in a voluntary carbon context? And why are we insisting on this corresponding adjustment cost being paid? 
Now, one answer to that is, well, Corsia, which is the international aviation offsetting scheme to deal with the ICAO treaty obligations to manage carbon emissions, those ICAO companies, the airlines essentially, are going to have to buy offsets from somewhere to be able to meet its Corsia targets. Now, Corsia's emissions are not Paris Agreement emissions. Corsia's emissions come from the fact that you carve out international aviation emissions from the Paris Agreement, and you carve out international shipping emissions, and you deal with that under the IMO Agreement. So when we talk about Paris Agreement emissions, we're really not counting as part of that NDC requirement that countries have to meet the international emissions of their airlines. The domestic emissions of their airlines are called by their NDC, but the international emissions of their airlines are not part of their NDC. So when we talk about a, I'll use a simple example, British Airways as an airline having to source carbon offset to meet its Corsia obligations, it has to tap into the supply of emission credits or emission reductions that are available within the host countries, because that's your source of supply. So for that source of supply, you're draining carbon offsets that are otherwise capable of you being used within the Paris Agreement, and you're taking it and using it in a completely different accounting framework, in this case, the ICAO framework, for Corsia purposes. So you are taking it out of the Paris Agreement. Now, if you're taking it out of the Paris Agreement and the host countries giving it up, and you are insisting that the only way to avoid double counting is by forcing the host country to do a corresponding adjustment, you're still forcing the host country to make up for his NDC, because he has now chosen to export something that would have been available for him to meet his NDC, but he's now using it in a completely non-Paris Agreement context, i.e. he's using it in Corsia. And that logic similarly applies to using it in the voluntary markets, because the voluntary markets don't require the minus one to be used by the host country at any stage. Similarly with Corsia, you know, the UK as the parent country for British, British Airways is not going to apply a minus one against its NDC when British Airways uses that unit for its Corsia purposes. So we're penalizing the host country for the supply of carbon offsets to Corsia, just the way we would be penalizing them if they were supplying carbon offsets into the Paris Agreement. But they're completely accounting, different accounting books. So why are we doing a corresponding adjustment? It doesn't make logical sense. Some argue that, well, what other ways are there to ensure that we're not double counting? And I have some sympathy for that argument, because what you're then saying is, okay, the simplest solution for me to make sure there's no double counting is to force the country to do a minus one. But then please do recognize that that minus one that the host country is doing is going to cost the host country a lot of money. So you're going to have to pay for it. And then my question to you as a buyer of, some, of a voluntary credit that does not need to be correspondingly adjusted is, are you ready to pay that cost? If you bought the equivalent correspondingly adjusted credit from the United States, the same World Bank study says that the cost of an American corresponding adjustment, again, separating the cost of the actual abatement itself, but the corresponding adjustment cost is about 155 US dollars. So that gives you a little bit of context of the type of price that you are asking yourself to pay by insisting on a corresponding adjustment on a voluntary market product that doesn't need to be correspondingly adjusted. At the risk of me introducing confusion into your clear exposition, I just wanted to repeat it back a couple of things to, to see if I got them right. First, I think the double counting piece makes sense 
to people in terms of when it's between countries that are signatories to the Paris Agreement, if one country is going to let another country claim credit for a project and it's within its borders, then that country should have the, the plus one and the other should have the minus one or vice versa. And then when we add everything up, all the plus ones and minus ones cancel out and we kind of know, okay, this were how many aggregate carbon reduction projects done and we, we get to a number that works counting up on a country basis. Now, double claiming seems to be when we go outside that system. So when we start including Corsia and we start including the voluntary carbon markets, is that right in terms of the, the definition of double claiming versus double counting? Dave, thank you very much for trying to unpack what I just dumped on you in my previous uh, <laughs> previous answer. You're absolutely right. The idea of double claiming comes from the fact that there is no clear definition of double counting. People generally understood what is right and what is not right when it comes to double counting because it's easy to say, well, the same carbon emission credit shouldn't be sold twice, double selling. The same carbon credit shouldn't be issued twice, by two different standards when it's only one ton reduced, double issuance. The same carbon credit shouldn't be used twice to meet the same NDC target. These are relatively straightforward scenarios that people can agree on, and therefore there is no challenge to say that those are clear examples of double counting. Where people find it harder to agree on is this notion that a country will reduce a ton and therefore, it will report that reduction as part of its accounting reporting requirements under the Paris Agreement. And a voluntary corporate entity outside of that country will make a claim about retiring a ton represented by that same ton that the country is otherwise reporting. So you've got the country saying, this mission reduction has happened and therefore I'm reporting it as part of my inventory reporting obligation under the Paris Agreement. And that ton of reduction may have come from inside my NDC, it may have come from outside my NDC, it doesn't matter. For inventory reporting purposes, I'm going to report it anyway. But then you have the corporate entity saying that I have acquired the right to make a claim that this ton represents one ton reduced. And therefore, for corporate offsetting claim purposes, I can retire it against my carbon footprint that exists for my scope three emissions. And people struggle with the idea that those two things are not double claiming. In one purely technical sense, it is true that both people are making a claim, the host country and the corporate. But the claims are being made in the context of two different accounting frameworks, and there are two different types of claims. So actually, there isn't a duplication of a claim. There are claims, but it's not the same claim, and it's not the same claim being made in the same accounting context. So does that then become double counting? There are some people who say very strongly yes, and there are some people who say no. I originally started out as being one of those people who intuitively felt that it was double counting. But I've now, having thought about it for at least three years, come to the clear view that I don't think that double claiming is double counting. But the people who've lost the argument the same way I've gone through a journey and have rationalized it and lost the argument in my own head are now trying to run an argument that says, however, you are theoretically disincentivizing the host country 
from doing what it was supposed to do under its NDC, for example, anyway, by you paying them to do it. So what you're really doing is you're helping finance their NDC activity, in which case the activity that you're doing really is not additional. And therefore, if you want to make it additional, I require that and I insist that the country makes up the fact that this is coming from inside its NDC and they therefore need to make an extra ton. And I will therefore insist that they make that extra ton by forcing them to do a corresponding adjustment. In other words, I'm going to penalize them if you want to make an offsetting claim. Otherwise, there's no the offset that you're buying isn't a good offset. And I have a real problem with that issue because we've just talked about the idea of corresponding adjustments being there to ensure an avoidance of double counting. Now, the people who are making this argument are saying that I have a concern about additionality and I want to enforce or improve the additionality situation by forcing you to do a corresponding adjustment. In other words, to make you pay a penalty for it, because that way I know that a ton is definitely being achieved, reduced elsewhere. So I insist that if you want to make an offsetting claim, you must, even if it's in a voluntary carbon unit, you must do a corresponding adjustment. And I don't get that argument because that's trying to use a double counting tool to justify a weak additionality issue. And I have logical problems as well as intellectual problems with saying that I should use a tool for one purpose for completely another purpose and then make a sweeping statement that says if you don't have a correspondingly adjusted voluntary carbon credit, that credit cannot be used for offsetting claim purposes. I just have a real struggle understanding that. I think I'm going to keep you on this topic for me to have one more set of questions because I'm finding that you're changing my thinking about this on the fly. So bear with me, if you will. So I think one of the really interesting things here is if you start off at the country level, as we have, and then go to Corsia, you can make some sense of, okay, well, the international air travel wasn't counted under the individual countries. So if we want to get to this kind of scientific concept of what really matters is total cumulative global emissions in terms of temperature rise, we want to be able to, at some conceptual level, add up the emissions in each country, plus the things that are falling through the gaps like international air travel. And so at that headline of what are total emissions, it would be country plus international air travel plus maybe international maritime. And so that idea of double counting starts to make intuitive sense again. I think when I go to the the voluntary markets, this notion that you bring up of it's two different accounting systems comes to the foreground because if a corporate is making a claim against its own net zero commitments, that might be something that's happening in a country. It might not be. It might be counted. It might not be. It's just a different accounting system, as you said. So the way I'm thinking about it now after listening to you is if a host country has projects, it's not necessarily exporting the claim the way it would under Article 6 if a corporate decides that it wants to buy the credit. Instead, the corporate and the voluntary carbon markets becomes another mechanism by which the host country can meet its obligations. So it can either get carbon financing from the voluntary markets, it could impose a carbon tax, it could just say you're not allowed to deforest in this area. There's lots of ways it could accomplish that goal and that ambition. And the voluntary market just becomes one more way to do it. It's not exporting the credit because they're not in the same accounting system. Is that am I am I catching your your meaning there? Or does does that make sense to you? Or what am I missing? No, I think you're right. I've made the point, I think, in many of the papers we've written before that 
the host country doesn't have to look to Article 6 to raise carbon finance. It could look entirely to the voluntary markets, get the voluntary market to fund its emission abatement opportunity, and essentially never have to do a corresponding adjustment because what they're exporting in those instances is not an INTMO. And that's perfectly something available to a country. I mean, think of a practical example. If we get to a situation where avoided deforestation country-level programmatic activity isn't accepted for some reason as an Article 6 methodology. Let's just take that hypothetical. Forestry countries will have no choice, really, but to go to the voluntary markets if they want to continue to raise financing for protecting forestry. So that's a very good example in my mind of why the voluntary sector may always have a role to play that the Article 6 sector in that example will never be able to fulfill. You could, of course, have some countries doing bilateral 6-2, and into that bilateral 6-2, they recognize avoided deforestation as a relevant mitigation activity. But then that's a smaller bilateral niche arrangement, not necessarily one where the private sector has a role to play. So it goes back to the comment I made earlier about do you want the private sector to have a role to play in these G2G frameworks that you're building, in which case, please build in G2G plus B2B. So you're absolutely right. A host country, therefore, has choices about whether or not it goes down Article 6, whether it goes down Article 6.4, whether or not it goes down voluntary markets. The problem is, if we start trying to penalize the country for its choices artificially by insisting on corresponding adjustments when there are no logical reasons for requiring it, then we're really just saying to these host countries, that we are trying our best to discourage you from participating in any form of carbon markets. And we're saying to the buyers, we are really going to penalize you if you think you're going to try and offset your way out of your decarbonization objectives. And if you think about aviation and marine as two examples of very hard to abate decarbonization sectors. You're saying to them practically, we don't have a scientific alternative for you to decarbonize, but we're going to penalize you anyway by insisting that any of your voluntary activity must nonetheless be subject to a corresponding adjustment. And I'm not sure that that is the right answer when you have no alternative abatement solutions. I think I'm going to put the T accounts to the side right now and stop going after the debits and credits. But I, I do, I think the, the takeaway there is by forcing corresponding adjustments to credits that will go into the voluntary markets, you are forcing carbon finance to only be available to the most expensive projects that you know are above the NDC commitment of the country, which makes it very expensive and penalizes the host country and penalizes the the corporate with the net zero commitment that would like to purchase it. Yeah, I think that's a much better summary than I could have done myself. So well done. Thank you. All right. I'll, I'll give myself a gold star for that one. Now let's go to something equally as important, I would think, but hopefully more clear cut. And that's the realities of nationalization risk. And I'm curious, I think it's pretty straightforward. People understand what it means for something to be nationalized. But how is the potential for that affecting the behavior of countries and companies in the voluntary carbon markets right now from your perspective? It's very clear to me, and it always has been clear to me, that there are plenty of countries out there, and a lot of them are 
what you would call former non-Annex 1 countries under the Kyoto Protocol, which is countries who did not have some kind of binding cap-and-trade obligation or cap under the Kyoto Protocol, that in those countries, they don't necessarily have legislation dealing with carbon emissions. So if you are Indonesia and you don't have a car manufacturing industry, a domestic car manufacturing industry, are you likely to have laws about whether or not cars produced in your countries must meet a certain minimum emissions standard for car production? Unlikely. There may be an international standard that you can look to and you can say, I adopt that, but that's an exercise of adopting another country's standard or law and making it a law in your own country. So for me, nationalization risk is the idea that countries, host countries, and all of, in fact, all NDC Paris Agreement countries who have committed to their NDC are going to have to start thinking about how they're going to meet their NDC objectives. And depending on the sector they're in or future sectors that they anticipate coming into their NDC, they're going to need a raft of laws to cater for the ability to manage the cost of a carbon emission, because that cost of a carbon emission is now part of essentially that country's NDC commitment. So if you're a country who historically hasn't had laws that regulate and control carbon emissions in your domestic space, you are going to pass a lot of laws. And you're also going to say this cost of abatement that the market is exporting, that cost of abatement that the market is exporting has a price on it. And I want to make sure that I understand how that price is addressed, managed, and organized. So if there are cheaper abatement opportunities that allow me to export more cost-effectively, I want to make sure that I maximize those first. But if I have a voluntary sector entity out there claiming they're already doing it, and now people are accusing me of this being double-counted, then how do I deal with that? So nationalization risk is really the idea that countries have to get a grip of the laws and regulations in their own countries so that they can achieve their NDC. So activity that in the past that didn't require you in the voluntary sector to engage with host countries, that freedom, which existed sort of under the Kyoto Protocol, is basically no longer, I think, existing in most NDC countries going forward. Some countries are much ahead of others in passing laws. We did a paper comparing India, Malaysia, and Indonesia quite recently, and it was quite clear that Indonesia amongst those three countries is well ahead of the other two. But every other country is going to go through this journey of passing their own laws. We hear about Papua New Guinea talking about a new Article 6 framework, which covers also voluntary market credits. We similarly see something in Ghana, and a lot of the multilateral development banks are now funding the processes of these countries developing these authorization frameworks, partially because they need them for Article 6 purposes, but also because they need them to take control of their own domestic emission abatement opportunities anyway. So nationalization risk is really about the coming into force of those laws progressively and how they impact hitherto unregulated activity like the voluntary market activity. And while we're on the topic of some of the risks to those in the voluntary carbon markets, I want to ask you about another risk that's not specific to Article 6, but it's this idea, and Svenja Telly, who was on last week from Base Carbon, brought up the changing perceptions of quality when it comes to looking at reductions versus removals among corporates with net zero commitments. And I was curious if this is a topic of conversation among your clients and 
how do you advise them to think about reductions versus removals and the relative risks of the two? I'm very much looking forward to hearing her views on this because you're right. It's a, it's a topic we get to talk to our clients about all the time. And it's because our clients want to know what to invest in. That's the reality. If you take the view that there are some categories of carbon mitigation actions, such as avoided deforestation, which fall into the reductions camp, that are not necessarily kosher for the purposes of certain corporate claims, then you've got a real problem as to why you should invest in them today. But then ask yourself this other question, why would I not invest in them? And if the answer is I'm not investing in them because somebody has told me I shouldn't invest in them, then you've got to go and ask yourself, did I really understand that before I signed up to it and agreed to that? Because let's let's ask ourselves, what is the role of removals and how is that distinct from reductions? So removals are conceptually where you've already got a ton in the atmosphere and you've come up with some form of technology-based or nature-based solution to remove that ton from the atmosphere. Now, that's good. The problem is that removal technology like that is much more expensive than reduction technology. And we have a much shorter track record of dealing with them. So when it comes to the investability of these things, we have less experience, put it simply. Carbon reductions, on the other hand, are something we have been working on since the beginning of the Kyoto Protocol. So we have 15 plus years of experience of dealing with them. And in those 15 years, we have learned a lot. We've learned some good things. We've learned some bad things. But the point is we have learned. And all of that, all, the, all of what we have learned, we still yet have to learn when it comes to re removals. So removals, in my mind, are a less tried and tested, investable carbon abatement opportunity compared to reductions today for those reasons. But philosophically, a reduction is an avoidance of a ton of carbon being emitted. So contrasting that to a removal, where a removal is one ton already exists and you're trying to take it out of the atmosphere, a reduction is where you're trying to stop that ton from being emitted in the first place. So you, you're really looking at this question from a slightly different spectrum when you're comparing one against the other, if you look at it from a budgetary perspective. So we are told by the IPCC that if we want to stick to our 1.5 degree net zero goal, we roughly have between now and 2100, the year 2100, the ability to burn about 420 gigatons of carbon. And that 420 gigatons, as you, you and I have talked about, is split between aviation, shipping, and the rest of the global countries through their NDCs. So those 420 gigatons, if you think of what a reduction does, a reduction allows us to burn through that 420 gigaton budget more slowly because we're avoiding the emission from going out in the atmosphere in the first place. Contrast that to a removal where what we're saying is that because we're taking one ton out, our 420 gigaton budget just got one ton more that allows us to sort of balance out and what we burn. Now, is one better than the other? I think the answer to that is no. Do we need one more than the other? I think we need both. My philosophy is relatively simple. You know, one ton of carbon reduced today is one less ton of carbon to remove tomorrow. And I think that's, in its most simplicity, my position on this. Sounds a little bit like a penny saved is a penny earned. It certainly makes sense. I wanted to ask you one last question before you go. 
you know, I feel like with a lot of these conversations, particularly around some of the policy issues and trying to get settled on these terms and the accounting structures and all these important details that make policies and make markets work, sometimes it can feel like the issues are swirling around, like the conversations kind of keep happening without making meaningful progress. So I wanted to ask you, do you feel like these discussions are, are getting a little swirly sometimes, or are we making progress and driving to a consensus, to a settled understanding from which we can take meaningful action? And if we aren't driving to that consensus or not driving to it fast enough, what do we need to do next to help us get there? Wow. Talk about ending this with an easy question. Um, <laughs> uh, look, I draw on my experiences of carbon markets 1.0 when I answer th this question, which is I've seen it happen before. I know what went right and what went wrong last time around. And I ask myself, what are we doing in carbon markets 2.0 that is right? And what are we doing that is wrong in a very similar way? But the difference is I'm drawing on experience when I make that statement. There's a lot of people out there who are building this market, who are doing this without that experience, right? They're doing it in a vacuum in one sense, and they're not necessarily drawing on the experiences of what we th thought did work and therefore should be held on to versus what we thought didn't work that should therefore be improved upon. There is very much of a everything that went before was bad. It has to be replaced with something else. And therefore, that's not a good thing. And otherwise, the attitude is very much, well, we're going to recreate everything from scratch. I don't necessarily feel that those conversations are necessarily helpful. We don't have the luxury of time to throw the baby out with the bathwater and start fresh. We just don't have the luxury of that time. And removals are great, and I think they are needed, but they come at such a bigger price ticket than reductions. And they are so much further out in terms of investability from a technology perspective, and if you will, the gaining of the benefits perspective, that we've got to really think about what can we do now rather than what can we do tomorrow. So in one sense, the removals reductions debate is a little bit about, you know, kicking the can down the road a little bit. Because if I take a simple removal example of afforestation, afforestation where I plant new trees today is good, but the tree has to grow to a certain level of maturity. So it's five plus years before it really is leading to any environmental benefit that are tangible in terms of tons removed. So similarly, from an investment perspective, that translates to five plus years before I can get any return. Now, if you are going to the private sector and you're going to say to them, put your money in so that you can get your money back, they're going to say, well, what's my, when am I going to get my return? What's my rate of return? How do I ensure that my money and my value is protected? And the longer you put out the ability to start recouping that value, the less likely or the harder it becomes for somebody to invest in that. And that's kind of where we are insisting and pushing things on the argument that removals are superior to reductions. But for the reasons that we just talked about, I don't necessarily agree with that. So we are trying to allow perfection to be the enemy of, of the good. And I don't think that's a very healthy thing for us to be doing if our genuine purpose is to try and resolve and meet the 1.5 degree target. You know, we can't say we're only going to support nature-based removals and we're going to ignore carbon capture and storage and other tools available to us that are capable of helping us get to the 1.5 degree journey. 
And I just don't understand why we would make that case. But when you talk to most people, they have this very blinkered view that says, we can only do nature-based solutions because that's the only thing that I think we trust. We don't trust any of the industrial gas solutions or the uh, geological storage solutions because ideologically, we don't agree with that. And my point is, you might not agree to it ideologically, but if it gets you to the 1.5 degree target more likely and increases the chance of you doing that, is that not really the, the point we should be talking about rather than your ideological superiority over somebody else's? So I think that's the bit that I really struggle with in Carbon Markets 2.0. There's too much ideological debate and not enough practical considerations of the reality of what 1.5 degrees really means and how we should get there. Thanks again to Peter Zaman from HFW in Singapore. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue to explore the carbon frontier on Smarter Markets. We hope you'll join us. This episode has been brought to you in part by Base Carbon. The trading of carbon credits can help companies and the world meet ambitious goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But how do we judge the quality of these projects? And how can we ensure that our investments are creating real value? At Base Carbon, we're focused on financing and facilitating the transition to net zero through trusted and transparent partners. It's time to focus on what's important. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.